From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. The aerodynamics of trains, I, I, speaking to what I suspect is a broadly aeronautical audience, you really do need to have a paradigm shift. Forget nice, well-developed boundary layers, nice, smooth flows. Uh, trains operate in a very dirty aerodynamic environment. Um, the boundary layer at the back of the train is broadly the size of the train itself. Highly three-dimensional, very messy. So we're talking about something that is really most unlike most of the flows I suspect that you're involved with. But I hope it will be of interest. What I'd like to do is just to talk a bit about the flow around trains, um, then to talk about the issues that come up in train aerodynamics, the tools that we have to deal with the issues, and then go through those issues in a bit more detail. There'll be very few equations, mostly pictures. Uh, I hope it will be of interest. And I'll just speculate a little bit at the end on the possible future. Right. When we think about the flow around trains, uh, it's now accepted that we can think about these in terms of a number of regions along the train. Around the nose of the train, despite what I said, the flow is basically inviscid. Very simple methods can be used to calculate the flow around there. Then we have a boundary layer developing along the train side and along the train roof. It's, of course, immediately a turbulent boundary layer, uh, very unsteady, high levels of turbulence. Uh, in the near wake of the train, just behind the train, uh, you can very often, depending upon the shape of the train nose, train tail, uh, get very... Uh, concentrated vortex patterns of some sort or another that I'll talk about. And then in the far wake of the train, we've basically got a self-similar decay. But the last point, flow is highly turbulent and unsteady, and that needs to be borne in mind. What I show there is um, a series of velocity measurements at the side of the train. And these velocity measurements were made around the S103 train, which is a Spanish high-speed train. And uh, each of those grey lines, there are ten grey lines on there, show one realisation as a train goes by. Okay? Uh, and the important thing to do is to note is this massive variation of the velocities as the trains go by. It depends where you are in relation to the large-scale eddies in the boundary layer as to what you actually feel. If you want to do this, go and stand by the side of the train, of course, outside the yellow line, uh, and just experience that. Uh, experience, and you'll find a very variable uh, feeling depending upon the run of the train. I've shown the mean, uh, that's the ensemble average there, and the two standard, two standard deviations, standard deviations either side of the mean. If we look at that, just looking at the means, here, again, what I plotted is the velocity, normalised by train velocity on the right, on the y-axis, the distance along the train on the x-axis, and the three lines, the red one is close to the train, blue one is furthest away, and you can see the sharp nose peak in velocity, uh, the inviscid peak, uh, the development of the boundary layer, uh, obviously much 
uh, greater the nearer the train that you get. A peak in the near wake. Uh, that we'll see is important, and I'll come on and talk about that later. And then a gradual decay in the far wake of the train. train here is about 350 metres long. It's a German ICE train. Okay, so I just want to stress the unsteadiness of it, uh, the unsteadiness of the flow field. But let's think about the issues that occur. Uh, why might people want there to be a group of people who know about train aerodynamics? Um, and this is really a historical list. It started in the 1930s in Derby with people making measurements of train drag in wind tunnels. Um, People then realised that when, as trains go a bit faster, you started getting pressure transients that cause your ears to pop. Um, uh, it became realised in about the 1970s, 80s, that trains do blow over, which is a bit unfortunate. Um, train slipstream started to be a problem as particularly freight train speeds got a bit higher and old ladies fell over and pushchairs moved on platforms. Uh, this is basically, as we're going through the years... Then into the 1980s and 1990s, the, uh, as the train speeds were going up around the world, hitting three, 250, 300 kilometers per hour, uh, people in Japan started noticing sonic booms coming out of the end of tunnels. It's not good news if you live near the end of a tunnel when a sonic boom comes out. Um, more recently, in the last 10 years maybe, it's, people have begun to uh, realize that as train speeds go above 300, 350 kph, uh, ballast starts to lift off and that has all sorts of issues there and so that, uh, that increases with speed um, and there are other issues I'm not going to talk about I'm not going to talk about the aerodynamics of the pantographs the electricity collection systems or acoustics or that's important or maglev trains I'm going to talk about standard wheel on rail uh, trains um, and other problems that keep cropping up like birds and bats and bees and what happens when trains hits them and that sort of thing uh, which you'd be surprised is getting to be an issue so let's have a look at those just because some nice pictures pictures of Mallard of course um, the, um, uh, still in the National Railway Museum at York and you can see um, that there were tests done on that in the Derby Wind Tunnel uh, people have done tests on trains with moving floors uh, and trains of different types, basically measuring drag, train pointing down the tunnel. Um, this is Patchway Tunnel um, in uh, Gloucestershire. Very small tunnels, Victorian tunnels, and these are tunnels where there is actually an aerodynamic speed limit. The speed of trains is constrained by the size of the pressure transient going through the tunnel. Um, this is a generic overbridge. Uh, when people these days are designing that sort of thing, uh, there is a need to know what the pressure loading is, the transient loading on things near the track, um, particularly as train speeds go up. Um, that's a container. It's sitting vertically upwards on the West Coast main line after it blew off its container flat. Uh, uh, it caused some disruption that day. Um, this is a train that paradoxically is consuming an awful lot of my life at the moment. That is a Class 66 locomotive pulling a freight train. It has the aerodynamic characteristics of a house brick, broadly. Uh, uh, and 
at speeds of 70 miles an hour, there can be really quite some very nasty effects around trains of that type. And I think, actually, uh, th there's, there's a lot more work to be done in this area. Um, sonic booms. Um, how do you get around sonic booms? I'll talk more about it later. I'll unpack it a bit. Uh, but you make the nose very long. Uh, or you put things at the ends, exits of tunnels. And I'll, I'll say why later. Um, not a very dramatic slide. That is a bit of track. That's actually on the Channel Tunnel rail link. And the little black bit is where a small piece of ballast has been lifted up, uh, dumped on the track, and crushed. And that does nothing for either the track or the wheel that crushes it. And uh, that's proved to be something of a problem in this country. In other parts of the world, the issue of ballast flight takes on really rather different ways. The big problem in France is lumps of ice falling off the train, starting a cascade of ballast flying, which can do, build up to very severe levels and cause a lot of damage. And, well, again, more of that later. So they're the issues. They're the issues that increase with speed, basically. Uh, and, of course, the aerodynamic effects, very broadly, increase with V squared, uh, as, as you might expect. So what have we got to do, you know, what tools have we got? Well, we've got full-scale testing, we've got wind tunnel tests, we've got something called moving model tests, which I'll talk about. And more and more these days, we've got a series of codes that are being developed uh, that hopefully contain some reliable guidance. If you look at um, full-scale tests for a start, um, that's the Olympic Stadium. Um, got nothing to do with trains, except that my colleague, Dr. Quinn, on the left-hand side, who was measuring trains there, measured the wind in the Olympic Stadium, and he asked me to show the slide. Um, uh, so, uh, full-scale full anemometry, sonic anemometry, um, that rig at the bottom there are full-scale pressure measurements and cobra probes, making measurements underneath trains on high-speed one, uh, with regard to the ballast flight problem. And inevitably, you know, for uh, full-scale tests are incredibly useful. They give you ground truth to which to model to, but they're complicated, hard to do. Uh, we're in the process of a big project I'll mention later again, uh, of actually making measurements at full-scale on a train, and that's on the, that's the network rail new measurement train that runs around the country, uh, up and down every main line every two weeks, measuring track conditions and so on, and we've been allowed to instrument it uh, and to make aerodynamic measurements on it, and data is coming out on that. And that's the White Horse at Uffington in Oxfordshire, and we're soon, I hope, going to start making some measurements at trackside uh, at, uh, at Uffington there. Uh, this is part of an EPSRC-sponsored project. And this, we hope, will give a consistent set of uh, real information against which the various modelling techniques can be compared. We have wind tunnel models uh, of different sorts, with and without um, uh, atmospheric boundary layer there. The one on the bottom left is the advanced passenger train of blessed memory, and that is the train on which I first cut my teeth in train aerodynamics in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, now... See, The next um, moving technique is something called the moving model rig. If you think about doing a simulation of a train, clearly, it's actually, if you want to do it properly, it's actually quite important to get the right relative motion between the train 
and the, and the ground. Um, there are a number of rigs around the world that can do this. This one is in Derby. It's now owned by the University of Birmingham, who bought it from uh, the firm who took it over from British Rail for £5 about six or seven years ago. Uh, they really did want to get rid of it. Um, and there are others in Germany and in Korea. Uh, but it's basically a very long test track, 200 metre long test track, and you can fire trains along that test track. Now, this is where the first of the videos probably fails. No, it hasn't. Um, so, um, it basically, it's a big catapult. Uh, and there you can see the train going by, into tunnels, underneath overbridges, past some fans that we've built into a, uh, a crosswind generator since. Uh, it's a little advertising video, naturally, uh, but there's something added to the end of it. If we want to do uh, work... And to get the right similarity in tunnels, we have to match the right Mach number. And this is at 80 metres a second. This train being fired along the track, it is really a bit hairy when this happens. Um, and you should see it in a moment. There it goes. 80 metres a second. Uh, another view of it. Okay, fine. Um, so um, uh, that's one technique. There are a few of these rigs around the world. Ooh, don't want it again. Uh, whoops. Um, some pictures of it there. Uh, the, the sort of train models that we use. Uh, and there's a hood around the front of a tunnel there. Again, that's to do with the sonic boom. That's a German design. I'll talk about that in a little while again. We've got CFD, of course. Um, the standard CFD technique uh, that's used in industry in the railways are various in RANS modelling in its various different incarnations. Um, uh, at Birmingham, myself and my colleagues and some of the students, including one over there who will answer any difficult questions on LES, uh, he's looking at the wall now, um, uh, are beginning to use different sorts of modelling, um, and this is a colleague, not myself, uh, detached eddy simulation and large eddy simulation, beginning to explore the possibilities and the accuracies of models that can reproduce the unsteady effects, uh, because that is, of course, where much of RANS actually falls down. And uh, if nothing else, you can get some really very nice visualisations of um, the flow structure around the train. Probably the most boring slide I've included in this, um, in this presentation. More and more, we're coming to... Uh, codes are being developed and they're becoming a standard tool in design uh, pulling together a whole lot of uh, research over the last few years through the BSI through the SEN organisation and now it, the industry in aerodynamic terms or not just in aerodynamic terms, in lots of terms the railway industry is uh, constrained by something called the TSIs the Technical Standards for Interoperability uh, and there are a number of aerodynamic TSI provisions there as well. Um, okay, so they're the issues that we're faced with and the tools that we have to do something about them. Uh, I'm sure you, many of you will want to ask about the tools. Uh, I've already been asked upstairs, what about Reynolds number? Reynolds number is a significant effect and it's one that most of us prefer to think doesn't exist, but that's... I can, I can talk about it, but I'm sure you'll want to pick up on some of those things. Um, okay, so go back to the 1930s. Uh, the first thing that people 
uh, began to be worried about in train aerodynamics uh, were um, train drag. How do you uh, calculate the train drag? And at the time, it was the rationale for that was wanting to know what was the drag of the train so you could size your power plants or size your um, uh, electricity generators or whatever. And uh, that sort of turned around recently and people want to know about the drag so they can work out how to minimise energy consumption. So it's been sort of turned on its head, the need for that. So obviously as speeds increase, aerodynamic drag becomes dominant. Uh, train speeds above 100 miles an hour or something, when the train's moving rapidly, then the, um, the drag is the major, major component of resistance. Um, how do we determine it? Well, it's really difficult, actually. Uh, you can do wind tunnel tests, but doing wind tunnel tests on a long train above a moving ground plane is really quite difficult, and you've got some really significant um, uh, Reynolds number effects to sort out. And in fact, still, the way that people determine the drag of trains are through what are called coast-down tests. You take, ideally, a long, straight section of track, and in Britain, these tests have been done on the track between Thirsk and North Allerton, on the eastern main line. Uh, and you measure the resistance velocity curve, or you actually measure deceleration and whatever, uh, and you fit an R is equal to A plus BV plus CV squared curve through it, and you say, let's assume that the C term is aerodynamic, and only aerodynamic, and all aerodynamic. Um, if you get the data, you'll find this is taken from some Italian tests. You, you get position and velocity data, and you have to differentiate that to get resistance, basically, deceleration. Differentiation is noisy, and you end up with a cloud of data points through which you fit a quadratic curve. Any of you who've ever tried that will know there's a huge degree of arbitrariness in that. Uh, you know, you can have a big B and a little C or, or vice versa and still get a pretty good fit. Um, so uh, there's a level of arbitrariness that makes you, you know, think twice about the, the how accurately you can know the data. And that's something I'm going to come back to. Uh, the accuracy that it is actually possible to know some of these parameters. Um, if you um, pull together a whole load of um, drag data from different trains, uh, the Shinkansen ones are interesting. Uh, you can see how over the years from the series 0 to the first bullet train to the latest, you've reduced the drag very significantly. Broadly, the drag decreases with train length, the drag coefficient as you'd expect, and over the years, it's, uh, people have learned how to get it lower and lower, and the AGV, the Alstom train, has got a very, very low drag coefficient. There's been a lot of care taken with that train. Okay, so train drag, the first, first of the issues. Um, then the second of the issues are tunnel pressures. As trains enter tunnels, uh, basically pushes the air in front of it, a pressure wave passes up the tunnel, a positive pressure wave. Um, it can hit the other end of the tunnel, and most of it will be reflected back as a negative pressure wave, um, which will go down to the other end of the tunnel and uh, be reflected back again. When the trail ta train tail enters the tunnel, 
it produces a negative pressure wave that bounces backwards and forwards. And you can very quickly, if you've got a complex tunnel with air shafts or indeed two trains passing, build up a very complicated pressure signal in tunnels. Um, these, though, the practical effect is they uh, can cause passenger discomfort. Uh, there are various criteria applied. The main European one is that you should try to minimise the change in pressure uh, to less than four kilopascals over a four period of four seconds. And so that's, if you like, the design point that people are hitting. How can you determine those? Well, um, given sufficient information about the nature of the train, the head losses around the train, you can actually use one-dimensional gas dynamics equations with a remarkable degree of accuracy, to my mind. It's not something I, I work in. Um, but you can actually produce very accurately using relatively simple methods um, quite complex wave patterns um, well, for either the observer on the train or the observer in the tunnel. You do need, though, some empirical data about head loss around trains. This question most recently arose um, uh, in the work that's been done to uh, increase the speed on the Midland Main Line. Uh, Midland Main Line between London, Derby, Nottingham and Sheffield. Um, where there are a number of different sorts of train, uh, the HST, uh, Class 220. And on that, they're, they're doing a whole host of things to increase the speed on that line, including taking out some curves and the like. Uh, one of the issues is there are a number of tunnels on that line where there were imposed in the 1970s and 80s aerodynamic speed limits for one reason or another. And they wanted to see whether those were realistic. So, um, and there's the, um, there's the track. So, they actually contracted us to actually make some pressure measurements on the train um, um, through um, a couple of tunnels on that line. Amptill Tunnel, one of you, some of you might know. And so, one Sunday morning, we turned up with our kit in Derby, and we made these pressure measurements. Uh, there is actually... Left-hand side, just to the right of the door, there is a little black spot at the top. And that's actually a pressure tapping that's there already that activates the train sealing. So that when a train goes into a tunnel, this train is sealed automatically. An ideal pressure tapping to make measurements from. And our measurement kit there, uh, you can see the cider bottle on the left. Uh, that is actually a, a real piece of kit. If you think about it, if you're making pressure transient measurements, you actually need a reference. And that was our reference, uh, and we had to have it with a long, the reference had to have a long leakage time constant to be useful there. And we were actually able to make measurements of the, um, of the pressure transients in these tra in these, uh, on these runs. And these were then used by the people who were doing the one-dimensional calculations to actually calibrate their model, get the parameters right, and then they could use their model in anger uh, to actually study the problem in more detail. And in fact, it did result in a relaxation of the limits. Once you've got the limits, what one properly ought to do, and it isn't really done, is to think about how people might react. There's been some work done recently, uh, not so recently, um, on looking at the... No, no, percentage of people who will react 
uh, in different ways to uh, different levels of this pressure transient, at different rating levels, and those rating levels go from the I can't feel it through to this is really very uncomfortable. And you ought to be using this sort of data uh, with the pressure limits, but people don't tend to go that far, um, really rather just relying on the measurements of the pressure limits themselves. Okay, so that's the second. As I said, in the, the next thing that kept, became apparent were pressures at trackside. Um, pressure transients can occur around trains, obviously, and these can load trackside structures quite significantly, uh, and normally they're not, they're not of themselves important. They have got the possibility of being important in fatigue terms, Transients can also load passing trains, and I write there the coffee cup experience. Um, you, you know it, you know, you've just about got a coffee cup to your lips, and a train goes by, and there's a juddering, and the coffee goes all down your shirt. It's happened to me, certainly. Um, uh, and so it becomes to be important, actually, knowing the pressure transients, uh, to determine track spacings and line speeds for new railways. Um, so, how can we determine these loads? Well, I'll talk about a number of things, basically things we've been doing over the last year or two. Uh, but there's a whole set of codified values in a European code, but basically addressed at European railway gauges, not the UK railway gauge. And so there's a requirement for, was a requirement for a UK national annex of these forces. So we did some tests uh, on the moving model rig around three sorts of train. There's the Pendolino at the top, uh, a class 158 on the right-hand side, and the class 66 loco again uh, at the bottom. Uh, and that's how they turned out when you actually built the models of them. Um, we have a model builder in Derby who's very much one of the old school. Uh, and whenever we do tests these days, we usually get cat files from our clients to do these tests. And our model builder simply prints out the CAT files to give elevation plan and whatever, and then builds it from those. So it's all a bit wasted on him, really, that. Uh, but they're very nice models. Um, we were asked to do tests around a variety of structures, such as overbridges, canopies, uh, hoardings at trackside, uh, platforms like the one at the bottom, a trestle platform there. And again, those were translated into various sorts of uh, cruder model. Um, and there are the canopies that we tested. Now, again, just one sample result just to show you. This is around the, the nose of these three trains. Distance along the train at full scale on the x-axis, plus or minus 20 metres. Um, pressure coefficient on the right, right axis. Uh, so norm, normalised pressures. And you can see, actually, uh, it's very classic... Uh, an increase in pressure, sudden decrease in pressure, and the important thing is the peak-to-peak. -peak. Uh, and the, perhaps the most significant is the green line, the Class 66 line from the freight locomotive can be very high. Um, we've also done some tests very recently, as one might expect for HS2, uh, measuring um, uh, tests on stationary trains as passing trains go by, the reason here is HS2 is in the position of wanting to know how far apart it ought to put its tracks, basically. Uh, and they're designing 
um, they're designing the the, um, the line to ultimately run at 400 kph and nobody's really pushed high-speed trains that far. So they wanted to know uh, what, um, uh, what the variation of pressure was with track spacing, and there is a criteria in the British Code that the pressure should not exceed one, peak to peak 1.4 uh, kilopascals. If you trace back where that comes from, it effectively comes out of HST coffee cup trials in the 80s. I mean, that's where it comes from. There's not a lot of science behind it. Um, but again, we were able to measure uh, the pressure transients for these trains, the front and the back pressure transients. And the, um, the figure on the right shows the variation of the pressure transients at different speeds against this particular limit uh, for different track spacings. And it's data like this that was one of the things that HS2 used in deciding the track spacing. And obviously, you know, this is quite significant because just uh, half a metre difference when you multiply it up by the length of HST, that's an awful lot of extra land take. Uh, so it, it's actually quite an important bit of, uh, bit of information they need there. Um, okay, so moving on through my list of problems. Crosswind stability. Believe it or not, there is a history of trains blow on, blowing over in high winds. Um, and that history still tragically continues. Um, the design question is how can you estimate the risk of this uh, so that you can then do something about it to bring the risk to acceptable levels. Here are some pictures of various things, uh, various um, some incidents, incidents at the top left occurred in China and the top middle is in China as well. Uh, top right, containers in Canada. Um, in the middle, we have a train blown off the track in Switzerland. Um, the bottom, we have a Finnish Railways double-deck vehicle. No incidents there, but that's one of the trains we've done some work on. Um, you might find that picture in the middle odd. That's the Channel Tunnel shuttle vehicle. Surely they don't blow over. Well, actually, when they're standing in the ports and when they're empty... They're at very significant risk of blowing over, not from normal synoptic winds, but from thunderstorms, which is the uh, design load for that, that case. So there was work done there. Pendolino train on the right-hand side. Um, the Pendolino had to go through the TSI approvals, or the, the approvals process, safety case process, and part of that was determining the risk of um, whether or not there'd be an overturning risk. And there was some work done by measuring the forces on this train on a beach in Cumbria. Uh, and it's a bizarre sight to see a Pendolino train on a beach in Cumbria. Um, I've already shown that. That was an accident that occurred four or five years ago, maybe. Uh, a couple of places, one day on the West Coast Main Line, some containers blew off. Um, and there, it wasn't, the winds weren't particularly strong, but the effect was largely, I think, because of poor maintenance of the container flats and the fa fastenings. Uh, this picture, this video, was taken out of the window of a train in Japan as it blew over. Um, and uh, you can see it again. Uh, so somebody was videoing this wild storm outside, and then that happened. Um, and you'll see uh, what actually happened there. And then I think, I'm told, that from the caption, 
uh, that there were actually people who were killed in that instant. It was a meter gauge train, relatively narrow gauge, uh, but nonetheless it was a serious accident there. Um, the flowchart for what one does in this sort of circumstance is uh, you either want to know two things at the bottom, the, the risk of a train blowing over on a particular route, or uh, you want to know whether your new train is going to be acceptable. To get that, you uh, actually develop something called a crosswind characteristic, the wind speed, the curve of wind speed against train speed at which the vehicle will blow over. Then you can use that with the wind data to calculate the route risk or with reference data to calculate whether the vehicle uh, is acceptable. To get that crosswind characteristic, you need some aerodynamic data, about force and moment coefficients, and you need then to put that into some sort of train dynamic model. I'm going to be largely now talking about how we get the aerodynamic data rather than anything else. Here are these tests that we carried out. We, I, it was Atkins who did it. I acted as a sort of advisor to this. Um, uh, in Cumbria with a Pendolino train and some Mark III coaches, a standard coach of the 70s, that, and that is regarded as a reference vehicle there. Um, and we made, made the measurements on a beach in Cumbria, uh, got lots of data for lots of wind speeds, um, and we measured the forces by actually measuring on load cells underneath the track. And you can see the really sophisticated calibration on the left-hand side there. Um, alternatively, you can go to wind tunnels, and you can make wind tunnel measurements of various sorts using internal balances, pressures distributed around the side of the train uh, to actually measure uh, the, um, the forces and moments. You can use a moving model rig. Um, this is an early version of a moving model rig, uh, low speed in a university at the University of Nottingham where I used to work many years ago. And yes, that is a lorry there. Um, and within the lorry there is a, quite a sophisticated six component strain gauge balance. Uh, here is a, a very old video of it. I'm gratified to find it still works when I, I, I try to make it get it going today. I know it's a lorry, I know it's not the title of the talk, but that's what, where we're at. Those of you who looking at the white on it, that is, of course, titanium dioxide, flow visualisation, um, is being dragged back into a firing carriage. This is a very low-speed run. The next shot will look down uh, over the side of the tunnel uh, as the train, as the lorry comes into the firing carriage and is pulled back. We are able to fire with two or three ropes here, get up to 15 or 20 metres a second. This is about three or four metres a second. It's again a bit catapult. Um, data logging equipment on the trolley on the side. Um, it will hit a release mechanism and fire shortly, I hope. There it goes. The next shot is looking down the wind tunnel, looking down the, uh, down the middle of an empty wind tunnel, and you will see the train come, the lorry come across from left to right. It usually coincides with the occasion when you blink. Okay, so uh, just watch, and when you think all hope is gone, it will come across. There it goes. Okay, uh, so quite sophisticated experiments for the day. Uh, we do it rather differently now on the moving model rig at Derby. We tend to measure forces by measuring lots of pressures within the train. 
and this has got its own joys in making these measurements. The downside of the rig at Derby is that it's very constrained because it has real railways either side of it, so there's the, the crosswind generator is very... the flow quality is poor, frankly. Um, the other method that we've got for getting aerodynamic forces and force data is, of course, CFD. And, as I say, that's being used more and more these days. Um, RAND's methodologies can produce pretty good data these days for this. Uh, what I'm showing here, there are LES or DES simulations. You've seen those. Um, what we end up with is curves that look like that. The top curve is the site force coefficient against the yaw angle. That's the angle between the relative wind vector and the train itself. So that's the force that's pushing it off. The bottom figure is the lift force. And those are the two important forces. Take data that looks like that. You put it into a dynamic model with some wind simulation. And the, the code wind simulation is really a bit odd. I don't like it, but it's in the code. It's called, not surprisingly, the Chinese hat um, simulation. Um, a, a sudden gust simulation. And you produce a curve of the accident wind speed against the train speed. And that's a typical curve uh, that you would get for high-speed trains, standard high-speed trains. So you would try to design a train that you get a, a characteristic wind curve above that one. So the accident wind speeds were higher. They're the benchmark data. Okay, so um, that's the um, crosswinds issue. Um, over the years, more recent years, people have begun to worry about train slipstreams. In particular, the maximum slipstream velocities at trackside and on platform to avoid the possibility of accident. How can you measure those slipstreams? Uh, what's the risk? Um, and recently, there's been a major EU project that's looked at all sorts of things, but this is one of them called Aerotrain. Um, it was one of three projects grouped together under the TRIO train banner. The second one was called Dino Train, which is about train dynamics, which is f fine. The third, which is about pantographs, was gloriously called Panto Train. <laughs> Brilliant title for a project. Um, we actually make measurements uh, in a, a wide variety of, uh, of lines of the slipstreams around a whole range of vehicles. And there you can see, see the vehicles there. And here you see some of the measurements we made uh, at a rather small station in Munich using sonic anemometry. And there's some of my colleagues who actually make the measurements. Um, um, and another picture. Uh, so you can see some of the different trains. Um, now, I just want to dwell on this figure for a moment. What we're, you've seen this sort of figure before. It shows the, the, the wind speed, the average wind speed from 20, 25, 30 runs, plotted against the distance along the train. Uh, so, you know, this, you have to transfer from a stationary position uh, to a position along the train. Um, the uh, y-axis, again, is the normalised wind speed. That's the wind speed divided by the train speed. The first figure on the left-hand side is... Um, just look at the dark line. That's the one nearest the ground. That's the TGV, uh, or the Spanish equivalent of it. And it's 200 metres long, and you can see the major peak is actually in the wake of the train. 
near wake of the train. Come on to that in a moment. That is absolutely characteristic of high-speed passenger trains. Again, I would urge you, if you're standing on a platform where the high-speed train's going by, go right to the edge of the yellow line, stand there, and you may feel the boundary layer on the train get to you before the train ends. The train goes by, it's 100 metres down there, and suddenly the slipstream hits you. Okay? And that's a very notable effect. Um, uh, the S102, that's a rather different sort of high-speed train with a sort of duck-billed platypus-style nose. Uh, S103 Velaro, that's now the standard, one of the standard trains across Europe. Same for each of them. Um, uh, most of the big long peak is in the wake. We've got the smaller nose peak, of course. If we look, though, at the last one, the last one is the S252, which is basically a loco, pulling a rake of coaches. And there, you've got two peaks, one behind the train, but also one just behind the loco. And it's the gap between the loco and the train causing that. So there are the averages. Similar figures showing one-second gust values for each of those trains. Um, and you can see, again, basically behind the train is where it picks up, apart from the uh, train and loco combination where you've got high-speed gusts sort of everywhere. Why do you get these behind the train? Well, you can actually get them because uh, on some modern high-speed trains, just like on uh, some cars, you can get trailing vortices coming down off the, off the, off the uh, back of the train, forming very powerful um, um, longitudinal vortex motions. And there's some evidence, there's a periodicity in there as well, uh, but they certainly exist at full scale and at model scale as well. And CFD, of course, can pick them out as well. Um, come back to the Class 66 loco. Um, and here, this is, these are model scale results from a research student of, of mine. Um, what we've got at the, um, at the top, and these are... At, different distances from the train, uh, from the side of the train. Just look at the ones on the right-hand side. Um, we've got the velocity divided by the train velocity at the top, the average velocity. We've got the pressure at the bottom. The pressure is very high. Even at 70 miles an hour, the maximum operating speed of these trains, you're going to be exceeding the notional limit. But if you look at the, um, at the velocities around the nose of the loco, you can get velocities that are actually greater than the train velocity uh, because they're two different components of them. And again, this is really potentially rather significant. Um, there is a general move to try and push freight train speeds up. If you can push freight train speeds up, you increase the capacity of the lines and so on. Um, and here, I think, we have a fairly sizable issue. The Class 66 is evil in aerodynamic terms. It really is. Um, there's an HST. Um, and that's going by... This is at Uffington. Um, Uffington, for those... Uh, I heard somebody talking about going home on the western, western region. Uh, the western main line uh, out to Bristol is being electrified. Um, what they want to use in the electrification process, or will use indeed, is a vehicle that looks like that at the top left. Um, with a basket, 
And they, that, they, in that basket, there'll be somebody who'll be attaching the cables to the, uh, to the overhead. But they want to do this while their train's going by on the other line. They don't want to shut it completely. So this is just one line at a time. And they were quite properly worried that people might get blown out of the basket by trains going by. And so we did some work for them uh, to measure that. And you saw a video of it. Um, instead of uh, the vehicle, we actually used a road rail vehicle. And you can see it just about make out an anemometer in the basket of that road rail vehicle. Um, and there's a... Uh, research fellow, Dr. Jordan, and she's actually measuring the speed of the train um, using a radar speed gun there. Did you know you can get radar speed guns that can measure 125 miles an hour? You can, we found. Um, colleagues have been looking to make measurements of, the, of this sort as well with um, CFD simulations and again are able to pick out the large-scale structures in the wake. Again, we've been doing some work on these for HS2, uh, both for the purposes of uh, passenger safety and trackside worker safety, and again for the uh, determination of trackside stability. So there are the slipstream measurements uh, for various trackside distances, and if you plot them in normalised form, if you plot them against uh, for different speeds, the actual values you actually find that using this particular sort of train, they've been using their reference train, you're well below any problem there. What you should, now, normally it ends there. People just say, we'll measure the, um, uh, measure the slipstream velocities, and that's all we'll do, and that's what the code says you ought to do. By rights, though, what you ought to do if you're going to do it properly is actually take people into account again, um, and that's where it gets very difficult. Uh, what wind speeds do people blow over at? We did some work on that in a very large wind tunnel at CSTB in France. Uh, and we actually uh, stood those people uh, behind a board. And we'll see in a moment, that's on a, a forklift truck that suddenly moved out of the way and exposed them to a gust and measured what they did. It's OK, they were only students, so it doesn't, <laughs> ma doesn't, doesn't matter too much. Um, um, and so there's the really sophisticated gust generator that we used. And you can see people uh, were moved backwards, uh, basically. And from that, we were able to get uh, probability distributions of the gust velocity you actually need uh, to displace people. And we did this for a whole range of uh, different types and sizes of people, um, uh, ranging from those who could be at number eight in the French pack uh, down to very petite uh, women students. Um, and properly, and this is an area of ongoing work, we ought to then put that into a model, uh, uh, a risk analysis model. If that's the CDF of um, people being blown over, what's the risk of it happening for a particular train type? Uh, and that's the risk, and I'm not going to dwell on that. Um, uh, but... Um, one of the things where I think I'm sort of going down a, a furrow that other people aren't is I would like to see our current codes actually being pulled back all the time to a, a sort of consistent risk-based approach. At the moment, the various criteria for the various effects are really rather scattered, uh, not coherent. Um, generally, people, however, don't listen to me, so that's probably OK. Um, Okay, nearing the end now. Uh, at very high speeds for long tunnels, I talked about the pressure wave. 
going into the tunnel. Um, in the past, that pressure wave tends to have been smoothed out. It's the pressure wave is obviously going to be the sort of length of the nose of the train. And it tends to have been smoothed out because of the friction of the ballast. Okay? And it's got shallower as you've moved towards the end and not been a particular problem. Um, however, many tunnels these days actually use what's known as slap track, concrete track. And that has a, a very different effect. Um, the top there shows, um, this is from a paper by Professor Vardy in Dundee, um, shows the way in the, which the wave steepens for different, uh, um, different tunnel lengths for um, ballastic track. And the one on the bottom shows what happens with slap track. And it's possible in long tunnels with slap track to have a very sharp wave coming out of the end. And uh, although most of it is reflected, some of the energy goes out and is experienced as a sonic boom. How do you get round this? Well, paradoxically, the way you get round it is to start at the entry end of the tunnel by building some sort of structure that keeps the, the initial gradient of the pressure wave as low as possible. So here is something they use in Germany, and that is bigger than the tunnel, and you can see some slots down the side, and that allows a very gentle pressure wave to build up, and because it's got a very shallow gradient, even by the time it reaches the end of a long tunnel, it hasn't steepened uh, significantly. Another sort there, and again, as you might expect, we've been doing this for HS2, um, using various different designs um, not measuring this, we've actually managed to measure the sonic boom, uh, but the, the idea of the test was actually to measure the gradient of the inlet pressure wave uh, rather than the sonic boom itself. Um, ballast flight then. At very high speeds, ballast is lifted off the track. As I said, there's a variety of different effects in different countries. Um, it can range from catastrophic damage, and there was a, a celebrated incident, if that's where putting it, of a German train for the first time um, moving into Belgium and being effectively paint-stripped completely on the underbody by uh, ballast flying around. Um, the snow and ice issue I mentioned in France, that happens in Korea as well. Uh, the principal one we've got here is track and wheel pitting. It's more prevalent than people think. Uh, there's a lot of um, practical knowledge in the in the minds of the, those who actually grind train wheels and track, which suggests that even in Britain that it's been happening for many, many years and people have just been grinding it away as a problem. How do you eliminate them? Well, there are, well, there are ways of eliminating them, but at the moment I think it would be fair to say that nobody fully understands the problem. There's a track pitting issue. Um, we, as I said, we've made some measurements on high-speed one uh, underneath trains there, um, measuring the pressures um, and the velocities. Um, it's my view that actually what causes ballast stones to move is some combination of uh, very rapid pressure transients, high shear velocities, and the track vibrating because the train's going over them. Um, so it's, it's a mix. Uh, one of the few mixes of aerodynamics and geotechnics um, I think. So we measure pressures, we measure velocities. You can get some very high velocities very close to the track bed. 
Uh, these are on Eurostars, and you can see a, 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 lump, a, a lump in the middle of that, and that's where you know, Eurostars are two nine-coach trains coupled together, and that's where that goes by. Um, colleagues at Milan, the Politecnico de Milano, Polymy, have actually been making similar measurements, and they've been measuring pressures actually on a, a cube underneath the track there. Uh, and comparing their experimental range with CFD calculations and getting really rather good results, rather pleasing results there. Um, they too have come to the view uh, that actually there's a lot more, this happens a lot more than people think. And they've done um, observations underneath the train which suggests a lot of, tra a lot of movement of ballast. Um, one of the things we're about to do with the University of Southampton is to study in this in a bit more detail. On our moving model rig, we have problems actually modelling the underbody because of the concrete nature of it. So to get around that, we've actually developed a technique where we mount the train upside down with a track upside down above that, and we'll be measuring through. That's just a, a one-coach mock-up there to prove the point. Uh, we'll be measuring the pressures and the velocities simultaneously there. Um, once you've got that, you can actually begin to do some calculations, very simple particle movement calculations uh, that will tell you um, something about the trajectories, what's required to get these moving. So there's work going on around the world on, on this, and I think um, uh, uh, people are uh, beginning to understand the issues. Still some way to go, though, and it needs to be backed up by full-scale observation. Um, there are various ways of doing full-scale observation. One that particularly appeals to me is that. Um, uh, that was taken on a train in Argentina, which is quite unlike anything I've ever travelled on, I have to say. So, very briefly, at 7 o'clock, well, 1859, um, what's the future? And the answer is, of course, I don't know. Uh, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, if you'd tell me 20 years ago that I'd be actively involved in studying sonic booms, which I thought I'd left behind in my postdoc career, and um, uh, ballast flying around, uh, talking to geotechnical engineers, a different breed, you know, different breed, uh, I just said, no, that, that's just not possible. As train speeds are pushed up, as we go to different sorts of motion, maybe maglev, uh, evacuated tube, there are going to be different aerodynamic problems. And they're going to come up. I don't know what they are, but I'm sure they're going to happen. In the meantime, I'll put that up again, because that is where I think a lot of my effort is going to be expended over the next year or two. And that, I think, is it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much indeed. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use.
please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.